Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. John 6, 25 through 40. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your full fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For none, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the bread, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much um, for this truth um, and for the hope we find in your word, God. Um, I just pray that uh, you would be with us this morning, be with Brent as he as he delivers the message, and just open our hearts to hear it and to be convicted in the ways that we need to, God, to trust you and to cling to you only. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. This is one of those days that, honestly, I really don't like. If I mean, I just I hate to say it. It's Palm Sunday. I know that. But see, it exposes things in my heart that I don't like about myself, things that, that show me that at, at times my faith can be so weak. My faith can be so, um, so, so pathetic at times. It's, it's a day where I can tend, tend to see my life as I look back. It's a reminder that there are so many different times in my life that I will proclaim, I will yell, crown him as king, only to a few short days later in my life live as though he needs to be crucified. See, the history of this text is, you know, this is kind of the last week of, of, of Jesus' ministry, not the text we're in today, but the text that we are going to talk about in Palm Sunday, which is going to be happening through the text we're in. See, John doesn't get to this until later in chapter 12, but I thought it'd be really good for us since we are in 6. Jesus has an interaction with the crowds, with the people, that is very similar to that that comes on Palm Sunday. And so Palm Sunday is the last week of Jesus' life. They're they're celebrating the Passover, which is interesting because the, the Israelites are celebrating the freedom that they have from the Egyptians while being enslaved by Rome. And Jerusalem is this elevated space. Everything goes up to Jerusalem. And so in Jerusalem, if you were on the Temple Mount, even you could see down into every direction around you. And so you, can, you could see these things coming. And here comes Jesus, this, this man, this carpenter. 
And he comes in riding on a donkey, and the donkey fulfills the, the prophecy, even the call to worship that, that Ben read earlier, Zechariah 9.9 or Isaiah 62.11. He comes in on a donkey, not a white horse, and the donkey is a, is a symbolism of the, kind of the prince of peace. A priest would ride on a donkey, not a king. People lay their cloaks on the ground, which is a posture to put yourself in a spot to say, I'm not worthy to walk on the ground that you walk. Mark tells us that, that people cut palm branches and they lay these things down. And here Jesus comes into his entrance into Jerusalem on Passover and every single person that sees him coming in, every single person that's interacting with him has some idea of what's going to happen right after this moment. They're even using terms like the son of David. It's a messianic term. Jesus knew what he was about to do. His actions proclaimed it boldly to all who had the eyes to see that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. So much so that even the Pharisees tell him, do you hear what they're saying about you? Tell them to stop. He says, even if I stop, even if they stop, the rocks will cry out. They say, Hosanna, which translates, save us. They say, Hosanna in the highest, which is to call on the heavens to save us. It's a, it's a, it's a statement that comes out of Psalm 118, a psalm that rejoices in Lord's triumph. In verse 22 of that psalm, the rejected stone has become the cornerstone. It's a marvelous work of God's doing which launches the day of salvation. And this is what Palm Sunday is. The long anticipated deliverance that Israel thought might never come. And the crowds proclaim Jesus as God's representative, one who would set for the divine purposes. Luke and John both include that they say, he says the king. So by all intents and purposes, the crowds, and, and most of these, these people are Galileans at this point, but everyone up in Jerusalem is seeing this very thing happen. And by all intents and purposes, they're saying the right thing. They have the right idea. The problem is, we all know what happens a few, door, few short days later, which is one of the reasons why I just, I struggle with Palm Sunday. Now, we don't know how many of those people were in the crowd, were laying the palm branches, were in, at, in, in during the, the trial with Jesus yelling, crucify him. We don't know how many of them, but it would be foolish to believe that some weren't there. And maybe they weren't yelling, crucify him, but they remained silent. See, they wanted to crown him for freedom from Rome. But Jesus displays he needs to be crowned for the freedom from sin and death. He came on a donkey's colt to be the stone builders will utterly reject on Friday and that God himself will unveil as the very cornerstone on Sunday morning. The expectations they had had of God actually blinded them from seeing what he was doing all along. And the reason why I think it's really good for us to kind of pause on a Palm Sunday and think about this and look at it from this language and, and look at it from this text here is that we see over and over and over again through all the Gospels, people missing Jesus while focusing in on some small aspect of it, of him. Their desires to gain from him something caused them to miss him entirely. And it would be foolish for us to think that we are immune to this. At this point in, in John's gospel, when this, when this happens, when John 6 is happening, the miracle that we're going to see right here, at this point, Jesus has most likely been in ministry for about two years. They've seen miracles and, and things that make no sense, and they've, they've seen Jesus kind of completely stump all the religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees. They've seen him kind of do all these things, and yet there's still this, this desire for him to be something that's only an aspect of what he really is. And I think that the same is, is true of us. And although maybe we aren't on a crowd saying, blessed is he, 
all of a sudden later on saying crucify him, I do think we have to pause to think, are we really living our lives as the person that would be in the crowd with the palm branches or as the person that would be in the trial at Caiaphas' house? Are we, which, which person are we? Are we remaining silent and thinking that that's enough? Is Jesus hitting the right spot with us? See, in John 6 here, this text that, that Ben just read for us here, this text is, is brilliant. It's, it's the beginning of the I am with a, with a, with a predicate on it. It's, a, it's the beginning of the I am statement. He says seven I am statements through all of the Gospel of John here. And this is the first one. And really, at the end of our text, it kind of, right after he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life, the, the rest of chapter 6 is kind of fleshing out what that means for him to be that bread. But we see in this section, just like on Palm Sunday, just like most of the times in our lives, we see these, these declarative moments, these moments where he stands and say, I will do this for you, Lord, and then only to see ourselves tossed, tossed by the circumstances or the wind or the struggles or any of these other things. See, they came to him with a felt need, these individuals here in John 6. And Jesus shows them their real need. So then they look for the solution for that need with the wrong motivation. And Jesus says, no, you you miss me entirely when you do that. The beginning of this section is it's right after Jesus has walked on the water. And again, there's chapter verses 22 through 25 are just a transition statement. They're, They're John's way of telling people, the crowds, how did the thousands of people on the side of Galilee figure out that Jesus and the disciples were gone? And they, they use this, this statement, there were boats from Tiberias, which maybe came from the storm, and they docked at the night, but they knew that the disciples left because they'd seen them leave, and they'd seen Jesus exit. He'd somehow told them to dismiss them and then left up the hillside. But when they're looking for him in the morning, they can't find him. And so then they jump in those boats, and they get around the way, and they make their way back to Capernaum where Jesus is. And their first question to Jesus, their first question in verse 24 is, is when, this, when they saw him, nor the disciples, when they, sorry, verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, teacher, when did you come here? Now, these are individuals that mostly had just seen themselves be filled to the fullest of fullest from some way that made no sense. They, their bellies were full. Even this question alludes to this, how did you get here so quickly? What, what happens? They don't understand, and they're trying to, to put pieces together, but this crowd, it, the way they're seeking him, it's like people running, looking for a lost child. They're trying to find him. They want to be near him. And Jesus answers their question in the way that I love that Jesus always answers a question where he doesn't really answer it at all, but gets to the heart of what they're really after. And Jesus says here in verse, in verse 26, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw a sign. So you're not even seeking me because of the miracle that you saw, which we knew was a, a predominant problem for most of the people. Is they just wanted to see more miracles. They wanted Jesus to kind of be a, a circus act, something they can look at. So you're seeking me not because of the signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. In other words, what he's saying is that you're looking for me because your bellies were full and you were satisfied. And now I understand most of us have all kinds of food at the, the ready of our hands. In this day, getting food wasn't as simple. They didn't just get to go down to one of their grocery stores or, or be picky about their allergies. Like, they had to catch their food. They had to, to work hard. They didn't have the means that we have. And so food is, is a, it was a big effort. It was a big part of their day, a big part of their life. And all of a sudden, they're getting food by Jesus in one moment where they have leftovers upon leftovers, and it, and it happened out of nowhere. So in some ways, who, who could 
fault him for wanting more of that food. But see, what we're missing here is something that, and we see it because they come into this context here in verses 30 through on. They bring up this statement of Moses and manna. What these, what these people are doing is they understand something that, that maybe we miss, is that, is that there's prophecy that talks about when the, the Messiah comes, he will feed us. And they saw, they saw the Messiah as someone that was going to be like second or a second Moses or an idea, and some, some of them did. And so because of that, they were like, okay, well, Moses fed us in the, in, the, in the desert for 40 years. 40 years we had bread. 40 years, over and over and over again, we had manna from heaven to feed us. And so they're thinking like, great, let's sit down. We're about to be fed. We're hungry. So they come to him with, with growling bellies because what happens with anything we eat? We digest it, and we become hungry again. Really, it's the same thing that the woman at the well did with Jesus. When she said, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming back out here to get this water. People continually interact with Jesus on the physical. And Jesus does something radically different. Their felt need is that they want to be full with an excitement that there might be a Messiah undertone into this. They're not, they're not, this is why they tried to take him to be king on the other side of the lake. But Jesus does something that is incredibly profound and wonderful. And if we, we miss it or read through it, we, I think we just we lose sight of just how easy and susceptible we are to be the crowd that crowns him on, good, on Palm Sunday and yells, crucify him on Friday. See, Jesus says that, look, I'm, I'm the one. You truly, I say you're seeking me. But do not, do not seek because you ate your loaves. Do not, do, the, do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. This seal is this idea of God has certified the Son to do the work of God. His insignia, he's, he's a representation of God, a perfect representation. Everything he does is of, the God, of God. And we've already talked about this extensively in John, but everything that Jesus does is the will of the Father. But he does something here. And this is one of those words where it really helps us to understand that a different Greek word is used based on the word that he uses that we would expect. See, when I say the word live or live, I can say, where do you live? Or are you really alive? And even though that's the same word, it means very different things. Are you living your life or are you alive? Like a physical and actual living. Well, in the Greek, they actually have two different words. So there isn't any kind of misunderstanding of like, which word was they using in this one? There's two words. We got, we got bios or bios, which is this like physical life. Bios is where we kind of get biology, like physical life or material life. And in this situation, they're coming to him with a physical need. We're hungry. Fill our belly. It would make sense for Jesus to use that word right here. But he doesn't. He uses the word zoe. And Zoe's a different word. See, we, we, get, we get wrapped up in looking at this and saying, well, okay, for, for food that endures to eternal life, and we tie those together and think, okay, it's, it's eternal. Well, we're all eternal beings. We're going to live apart from God or with God forever. But the word life there isn't bios. It's zeo or Zoe. It's Zoe. And this means it's, it's a life that is... That is um, transcends the physical. It's the quality of life. It's, it's how you live. It's, it's, it's the way that we are to operate. And Jesus says, look, don't eat the bread that perishes. Eat the bread that gives you life, a real life. And they would have heard that Greek word change. They would have understood that. 
they wouldn't have been confused by the use of that word. They would have been maybe a little confused by him using that word. But Jesus exposes their need. See, they're concerned with their stomach, and he's concerned with their heart. They're coming saying, I'm hungry, and he's saying, no, 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 you think you're hungry, but really what I'm trying to give you is life that that transcends hunger. I'm trying to give you a life that transcends thirst, a life that, that makes these physical needs stay in their position and their purpose for what they are. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about their physical needs. I mean, he just had compassion on them and fed them, thousands of them. But see, he he goes to Zoe. He says, you want life. You're trying to fill a Zoe need with a BIOS solution. You're trying to find eternal life, life to the fullest, by a physical element of life. It doesn't work. So then they're like, okay, well, this doesn't make sense. Well, this is crazy. So then their question is, okay, well, then what works must we do? What must we do to, to please God then? How do we do this? It's, it's almost like what they're essentially saying here is, is, what does God require then? What does God require for us to be with him? Because he's got this eternal life. And he says, he says, well, believe in the one whom God sent. It's interesting, if you look at it, they say what works, plural, and he says the work. He just kind of sums it all up in one, trust in me. It's not what you do. Now, this is a hard for a culture that spent most of their time knowing that we are, we are in the Father, we are in the Father's house, we are in his, his eternal life, in his presence, in his dwelling, based on the fact that we were born an Israelite. We were born into it, under the Abrahamic covenant. And then we have to do these things to make sure that we stay in place. And Jesus says, no, 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 it starts with the one thing that you do. Believe in me. That's what you must do. You must believe in me. It's, it's almost frustrating if you think about it with this whole conversation with Jesus. How are they missing it? He says, if you want to do the work of God, it begins with trusting me. This is the work. It's to believe in, the, in him who God has sent. Uh, remember, our faith in him is not a substitute for works. James 2 shows us that we are to live out our faith, which our faith lived out will bring about works, but it's not our works that brings our faith. It's, it's the other way around. Our faith is our foundation for works that truly please God. So now they're confused. and like, well, okay, well, he's asking me to believe in him. This is getting a little feisty. This is getting a little frustrating. This, this discord changes right at chapter or verse 41 where they become grumbling. They get really angry with him. They say, okay, well, hey, okay, you know what? This whole food thing, if you're really, if we're to believe in you, if you're the Messiah, if you're the one who's been sent, the prophecies talk about ourselves being filled, ourselves getting fed. Well, Moses fed our fathers in the, in the desert. He brought us manna. He gave us food. So what are you going to do? And I love it because Jesus corrects him. He's like, well, hold on a second here. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread, <laughs> be really clear. Moses was the conduit with which you got the bread. It was the communication channel. But God is the one who gave you the bread. God is the one who establishes it. And he says, uh, gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives, there's this word, zoi, life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Now, it would 
love to say that this seems like the question that they're like, oh yeah, like how do we do this? But he's already established how to do it. It's to believe in him. This give us the bread always shows just how quickly they missed all that Jesus was teaching to them. We can sit back and be like, oh, those idiots, those fools, what are they doing? But we realize if we look ourselves in the mirror, we are so susceptible to doing the very same thing. Expecting something out of Jesus only to miss Jesus himself. Wanting something from him and thinking that's the greatest thing we need and not just wanting him. So they say, give us this bread always. This is a, a, a what they're saying is, is, can we have this bread always? Can, we, can you keep giving it to us again and again and again and again? It's similar to the, the statement of when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he says, I must, I must wash your feet. And Peter's like, well, not just my feet, all of me. I want to be really clean. Like, give us this to again. Can we have this bread over and over again? If it's going to give us life, as if they had to keep doing something to make it work. And Jesus just gets as, as clear as he can. I am the bread of life is his response in verse 36. I'm that bread. You keep missing it. It says you're supposed to believe in the one whom he sent. You, you, you need life. You need bread that brings Zoe, that brings us life bread, but, but you keep missing who it is. Let me just be really clear. I am the bread of life. This is the first of seven I am statements with a predicate in John. The rest of this chapter is him fleshing out what it really means for him to be the bread. Jesus insists, you come to me, you will never go hungry. Now what Jesus is doing is he's meeting them at their understanding. This is a direct quote or an allusion back to Deuteronomy 8. And, and most of these Jewish leaders, most of these people, they would have known this because they knew the scriptures. Deuteronomy 8 says this, it says, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. Now the he there is not Moses, it's God, right? Which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man, what? Does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus says, you won't hunger if you come to me. You don't live on bread alone. You live from the word of God. I am the word. That's how John begins. I'm the bread of life. I'm everything you need for life. I'm all that you want. Yet so many of us, like these individuals here, keep looking to the bios things, the material things that we think will bring us life. And Jesus says, I'm it. It's not in relationships with other people. It's not in finances. It's not in health. It's not in your, your, attractional, your attractive look or your workout. It's not in your job or your income. I'm it. Jesus is saying, I am everything that you need. All that you want is sustained in me and me alone. You need nothing else for life. Yes, you may have physical needs and I will meet those things because I'm a good God. But I'm it. And then he ends this section, and we'll talk more about it in the coming weeks, but he ends this section with this beautiful explanation of God giving them, him those who believe in him. It's this beautiful, beautiful kind of interaction, or it seems like a transaction between God and Jesus, where God gives him us. God gives Jesus us, gives him those that believe in him. And Jesus then goes on and says, and I will not cast out. It means that you're already in. I will not cast out any of mine that have been given to me from God. And then he goes on one further and says, and I will never, ever, ever lose you either. 
Now, what's beautiful about this section is one of the things that, that most of the people in Jesus' day were wrestling with was this idea of works. What do they need to do to be secure, to be confident, to, be, to know that they're in God's kingdom? Because even being born into the chosen race of, of the Israelites, even being born into that still left them feeling like, man, I just, there's something missing. I need to keep doing these things. And that's why they're so adamant about getting all these laws in place and making sure that they didn't because they, their desire was to honor God. What's unique about this is Jesus says, I'm everything you need, not just for life, but I'll also preserve you. I'll protect you. I'll care for you. And nothing, in fact, I lose none. John 17 goes in a little bit later, just talking about except for Judas of all. And there's a whole thing about that. We'll talk about that later in like 10 years when we get to John 17. But Jesus says, I don't lose any. I won't lose one. Even in his prayer, he says, I have not lost one. So, so, so take heart, church. Hear me on this. Please hear me on this. No matter how ugly life has been for you, no matter how hard life has been for you, no matter how much your very present life has shown that you literally probably are be- not the crowd with the palm branches, but the crowd at the trial. If you have life in Jesus, if you have Zoe in Jesus... Your preservation, your perseverance, your your act of salvation is a work and a continuation of God's will in your life. One scholar says it this way. He says, The great Christian doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is not based merely on human effort, but on the confidence that God is active both in the saving as well as in the preserving of those who commit themselves to serve God in Christ. you won't be lost. No matter how lost you feel, if you are his, you won't be lost. Now, have you come to him for a full belly? Or have you come to him for life? And that's the question. That's the the Palm Sunday question for all of us. Have you come to him for a full belly? Have you come to him with an illusion or a belief that he needs to give you some aspect of it or have you come to him for all of life? A friend of mine was telling me about a date he went on <laughs> at a museum. He was taking this girl, and he was looking at this beautiful sculpture, and he's like, he's like finding himself kind of in this moment, like, wow, this is just wonderful. And he's like, hey, what, what do you see? And, and the individual looks out, and, well, I see a little paper clip there, and I see, and it like completely missed the sculpture, but saw how it was put together. And see, I think that is us sometimes with Jesus. We focus in on his as a healer or as, as a, a king that would free us from Rome or, or some aspect that he may give us or what we believe or just some eternal insurance policy. And we forget that Jesus is the entirety of everything and that he is not one of those things but all of those things. And you can't take or undo any of them and him still be himself. He is fully God. He is fully son. He is fully man. He is, he is fully Everything that he has said, I am the bread of life. Everything. You want to get life, come to me. Stop looking for it in other things. You'll be sorely disappointed. Stop missing the entirety of who he is for the little finite moments of him. And these people walk. I mean, we see it all the way through all of his ministry, all the way back here in in John 6 and all the way further up into John 12 on Palm Sunday. We see it over and over again. People fixate themselves on one aspect of what he's doing. Okay, well, if you're going to bring bread, then do it like Moses. 
Okay, well, you'll be our king, but that means you'll free us from Israel. You'll free us from Rome. That's what it really means, not that you will be Lord of my life. They like the idea of Jesus as a healer, as a prophet, or even a king or messiah, as long as it meant that they could get what they wanted from him. What's sad is that really isn't too far off for us either. For us, we aren't standing in the crowd expecting Jesus to crush Rome, but instead we are looking for life and every other thing out there. We believe that our life will begin once we graduate college. We believe our life will begin once we finally get married or we finally have those kids or our kids are finally gone. We keep forgetting that life, there is life in those things. It's, it's the bios. It's the physical. Yeah, I'm going to be hungry today, just like you will be. And you'll eat, and guess what? You'll be hungry again. And the instant you try to find the meaning of life, the purpose of your life, this eternal life, this, this existence that you belong in anything but Jesus, you will hunger again. But in Jesus, you will never hunger or thirst. And that's what he's saying. We keep looking to be us, the physical, in hopes that we can find life. So the way we may not be yelling crucify, we may not be yelling that at all, we most likely are saying, thanks Jesus, but I will find my Zoe in something else. Okay, Jesus, you're good as long as you take care of this part of my life, but this side over here, no, no, tushpa, nope, you don't get to be a part of that at all, no touch. We live our lives over and over like this. You know, when we read of this response to Jesus, plus the one on Good Friday right after Palm Sunday, we can't help but feel the tragedy of their words and their actions because of, of the overall blindness that they have. Like this is, this is it's, it's infuriating to me, but yet at the same point, I find myself doing the same thing. See, I don't think that we should really expect that we'd be any different than the individuals on this, on this day. The Pharisees and the people, they had their problems, but so do we. If we know our hearts apart from Jesus, if we could listen on the crowd, we'd probably hear shouts along with theirs. We'd hear our praise, hollow as it were, and then by Friday we'd hear us saying the same thing, crucify him. That's the reality of the brokenness that we have. So what happens? What happens when things don't live up to your expectations? What happens when Jesus doesn't seem to meet the need that you were expecting him to meet in the timing that you expected him to do so? Are you going to move on and try and find life somewhere else? Or are you going to recognize that he's at work? How willing are you, are you to follow him even when it's hard? Even when the masses aren't. Think about that. Even when the crowds aren't following him, are you willing to sit with him? Even when the crowds tell you that life will come from this, you'll get life if you can get this many followers and this many likes on your social media. If the crowds are all saying that, are you willing to say, no, my life is in Jesus? You'll have life when you establish this and your 401k gets a certain padding and you have this kind of things. That's how you can really live with the promise of some future that you have zero in control over. How willing are you to do this? Even when the masses aren't. Are you hoping for something much smaller than what Jesus is doing? Are you looking for Zoe and Bios things? This is what it comes down to. Maybe many of us are saying right now, like, save us. Save us from economic crash. Save us from health. Save us from losing our jobs. Save us from boredom. Save us from depression. 
save us from addiction, save us from, from many different things. Maybe there's, there's many things that we're asking God, save us, save us from ourselves. I want you to hear this. Please hear this. Jesus cares about those things. He really does. Jesus cares genuinely about those things. As you cry out to him, save us, he cares deeply about every one of those things that you're doing. In fact, we have scripture to prove it. Psalm 34, 17 and 18 says, when the righteous cry for help, help, Lord, end the pandemic. Help, Lord, fix my finances. Help, Lord, fix this relationship. When they cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now hear this, hear this right here. He saves you when you're crushed. He doesn't keep you from being crushed. He saves you. He saves the crushed in spirit. But like the people in the Gospels, we can call out to God to save us from what we see. Save me from this. Save me from that. Save me from this. But we have to be willing to see that he's ultimately about accomplishing God's plans, not ours. He did nothing apart from the Father's will. Nothing. We don't even know how to quantify that because we always do something apart from the Father's will. He did nothing. He said, I have come down from heaven. Right here in this text, he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So what does this mean? Don't ask for these things? No. In fact, I think Jesus gives us a beautiful picture a few short days after Palm Sunday. gives us a beautiful picture of us coming to the Father with whatever we desire. And it's okay. It's Jesus in the garden. Have you ever thought about this? Here's Jesus. Knows the Father's plan. Knows the Father's will perfectly. Spends much time throughout his ministry in prayer with the Father. Doesn't take one misstep from the Father's leading and here he is in the garden. Look what he's doing. It's Luke 22, 41 through 44. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed and saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus is asking for something that he knows the plan of God. He knows the purpose and the will and what needs to be accomplished, but yet he's still coming to the Lord saying, God, if you're willing, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. Now, I, again, this is maybe taking this text out a little bit further, but I think it's okay for us to come to God with our desires. Jesus models it here. I think he models after this. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. See, and I think so often we think we can't even ask these questions. How dare we bother God with these? I don't want to be a burden to God as if God has some limited resource. It's okay to come with them, those things, but recognize that your prayer, your posture, when you're saying save us from something, he may be saving you from something much deeper. You're asking him to save you from a material thing. He's saying, no, 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 I'm bringing about life. I'm saving you from something that, that is going to fill that Zoe need. Because only a Zoe solution will fill a Zoe need. You're either going to crown him or crucify him in your pursuit of life. You're either going to crown him in your life and you're, as you pursue life or you're going you're gonna to crucify him. If we have expectations that aren't met, it leads to questions of God. Is he sovereign? How can a good God? And blah, 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 blah. Why? Because if we get stuck in those questions, we do the same thing that these people are doing here. We want Jesus to fix and answer this one thing, this one way. You know, he doesn't even answer their questions. <laughs> like, they keep asking these questions, and he's like, well, yeah, let me, let, this is what you really want to talk about. 
What if God's doing that with us? If you crown him, you'll still have the same questions. You ever think about that? The questions don't go away. If he is Lord of your life, it's not like all of a sudden all questions are answered. Like, I have no questions. I have no concerns. I have nothing to ask for. That's the exact opposite. In fact, all of the premise of us asking from our father is based on the fact of us already being a child. But if you crown him, you'll ultimately submit your life to him entirely and you'll stop believing the lie that life can come from anything other than Jesus. One scholar says it this way, speaking about Palm Sunday and the, the Holy Week, really. He says, the people wanted a prophet, but this prophet would tell them that their city was under God's imminent judgment. They wanted a Messiah, but this one was going to be enthroned on a pagan cross. They wanted to be rescued from evil and oppression, but Jesus was going to rescue them from evil in its full depths, not just the surface evil of Roman occupation and the exploitation by the rich. Precisely because Jesus says yes to their desires at the deepest level, he will have to say no or wait to the desires they are conscious of and have expressed. Here's the other really beautiful thing about this thought. Even though this week started out kind of frustrating for me, here's the most profound and beautiful thing. Whether your life has been about crucifying him all the way up to this moment right now, he still calls you to crown him, to submit your life entirely to him. Romans 10.9 is, is an open invitation. And I would, I would argue, I would argue that you're here because God is after you. Because God is, is stirring in you in something. And some of you, you've been in the church for a really long time, but you've been in the church as a crowd person. Someone that just kind of shows up to church and, and goes through church and you got the scriptures answers and you give them money and you do all kinds of things, but there's, real, there's really no Zoe in you. Doesn't matter. Either way, Romans 10.9 says, if you confess, acknowledge with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, the center of all that you are, that God has raised him, Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. You will have life in the fullest. So what is it for you? What is, what is God needing to save you from? Would you be willing to ask that openly to the Lord? Recognizing that even if it's something that seems material and small to yourself, it's not too small for him. He cares about him. He relates himself to a father, a good father, and then says, no matter how good of a father you've ever experienced on this earth, they're evil compared to God. Are you willing to ask him to save you, not on your terms, but on his? We're going to sing the song Hosanna here. Which again, if you think about it, it, it had to have been amazing. If you could just picture yourself standing up on the, maybe the eastern kind of temple mount corner of the temple over Jerusalem, looking down as, as Jesus is coming in through this eastern gate, coming through the side on a donkey, and, and the palm branches are yelling, and you're hearing Hosanna, Hosanna from the highest. Save us, save us, save us from heaven. Save us. We're going to sing that. But I want to challenge you not to just sing it because, oh, I like the way the lyrics go. But I want you to take this time to ask the Lord to save you based on his means, to bring life the way that he brings life, not some frivolous kind of pointless materialistic life, but true Zoe life, like eternal life, life that can only be had from someone who is the bread of God.
the band's going to come up, and we're going to sing. There's lyrics. It's interesting. In this song, it says, heal my heart and make it clean. So it's, it's, it's putting on God. God, you heal my heart, right? The first, the first recognition is that my heart is not clean apart from you. Open my eyes to the things I'm seeing. I would even say open my eyes to the things that you're doing. Because so often our eyes are so narrow and so focused in on an aspect of God that we miss the entirety of who he is. So show me how to love like you have loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. Now hear me on this. Do not sing that if it's lip service. Here's the thing. Singing everything that I am for your kingdom's cause without any belief of that is to stand as a hypocrite. And for a God who has given us every aspect of life, man, everything still doesn't feel like enough to me. As I walk from earth into eternity, would you let this be a prayer, not just words falling from your mouth? Surrender your entire self to Jesus. Let him give you life, whether it's life for the very first time or maybe for real this time or it's him working on your heart through this difficult season. Maybe we could just pray to want Jesus and not what we want from Jesus. Maybe we could just say, God, I just want you. I'm tired. I'm tired of chasing anything else because it always falls short. And you know this. We're not foolish. You're all very smart people, highly educated, spent tons of times in the church, and yet we still get led astray to believe that life will come from anything but Jesus, and we miss it. Or we sometimes stare up at this beautiful sculpture of Jesus and focus in on one part and miss the entirety of who he is, just like they did on Palm Sunday, just like the crowd does here. You know, what's really interesting is this would have been, by all intents and purposes, probably one of the worst days in all of ministry history because Jesus ends this with this, with many thousands of people leaving him. (laughs) It's just too hard of a teaching, Jesus, and they leave him. This is like how not to build a ministry if we're going to try and build a church, right? And Jesus is left with those that realize that life is in him. They're just one of the disciples, where are we going to go? I love that statement. Where else will we go? You have life. I can't get it anywhere else. And so maybe as we sing Hosanna, maybe this is the first time, save me from myself. Save me from looking for life from anything else. Save me from, from making you less than who you are or trying to fixate myself on one aspect of you. Either way, maybe it's just time for us to want Jesus. And stop worrying about what we want from him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, I want Jesus. I need Jesus. I need life. Forgive me for so often looking to material things. Forgive me for, for losing sight that I have the bread of life in Jesus Christ, that I have, I have the Zoe life. I don't need anything else. Ephesians tells us that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. God, for those of us that are here today that hear these words and they seem hard and we find ourselves wanting to run or to to pick them apart and try to just dissect them as opposed to letting your spirit penetrate the center of who we are. God, would you tie our hands to that? Would you show us your will? God, for those that were here today that for the first time are professing you, 
as their Lord, as their King, as their Savior. God, would you show them what life really looks like? And God, for those of us that maybe found ourselves in the crowds, one moment yelling, crown him, Hosanna, and the next moment yelling, crucify him. Or maybe even just as the crowd saying, crown him, but then standing there silently while everyone else is saying, crucify him. God, would you make our, our lives congruent and true to the teaching that Jesus tells us, which is that we would, by faith that you have given us, persevere by the strength of your spirit which indwells us and live a life that is satisfied in Jesus alone. It's for your glory. In your glory alone we pray this. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God and love others.